We're going to break away from our series that we've been doing through the life of Christ, this, the series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. We've been walking chronologically through the life of Christ in the Gospels for a four-week-long series, a Christmas series, focusing our minds on what occurred, oh, those 2,000 years ago as Christ was born. So we're going to be doing our Christmas series through the book of Isaiah, though, through the book of Isaiah. So go ahead and open up to Isaiah this morning, Isaiah chapter 6 is where we're going to begin. So when I ask the kids, what's your favorite maybe Christmas Bible story, what would probably be your answer? What's your favorite Christmas story from the Bible? Anybody in here, kids? Is it the shepherds, perhaps? Or the wise men? Just the birth. When baby Jesus was born, they get to Bethlehem, can't find a place to stay, and he has to be born in the manger there, in the, in the stable. But a lot of times we don't think of Isaiah necessarily as the passage of Scripture we go to when we think about Christmas. But as you saw in the little video there, many of the verses we quote at Christmas time come from the book of Isaiah. And I wanted us just to go to Isaiah and basically look at what Isaiah has to say about Christmas. So we're going to be in four different places. Today we're going to be in Isaiah 6, which isn't necessarily one that you think of when we think of Christmas. Next week will be Isaiah 7. The week after that will be in Isaiah 9. Then Isaiah chapter 11. Now today we're going to read the whole chapter 6, which is only 13 verses. And we're going to read it here in a second. So go ahead and hold that spot in your Bible. But I want to give us a little bit of background real quick regarding Isaiah. No Old Testament prophetic work speaks more about the Messiah than does the book of Isaiah. So it's no surprise that Isaiah is extensively quoted in the New Testament. Isaiah himself prophesied in the 8th century B.C., uh, during which time Israel was a divided kingdom. There were the ten northern tribes called Israel. There were the two southern tribes called Judah. And Isaiah was a prophet in Judah. In this great prophetic book that we have called Isaiah, there is prophecies of divine judgment upon God's people, but there's also the proclamation of good news, of messianic hope. The passage that we're going to look at today is considered by many to be Isaiah's call into ministry and certainly one of the most astounding passages in all of Scripture. So please stand, if you would, as we read Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to begin with verse 1. And of course, we want to stand in the honor of the reading God's Word, and all Scripture is worthy of us standing as we read it. But in particular, this passage really grabs you. Isaiah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, 
This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, It will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, my prayer this morning is that I would be faithful to your word. That I would be a faithful preacher and that all the rest in here would be faithful hearers. It's a fearful thing to consider that the hearing, the opening of ears, and the opening of eyes to hear and to see what your truth says is in your sovereign control. It's a fearful thing. So God, we pray that you would turn our hearts toward you. We confess our sin right now, Lord, if there be anything that you're bringing to our mind that we need to confess to you, Lord, let us confess it. And help us, Lord, to even get just a a glimmer, a glimmer of what Isaiah saw. And it will change us forever. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's that time of year when the quote-unquote Christmas wars begin. What I mean by that is the, um, the, the constant thing you see on the news or, or hear on the radio of, of maybe a, like a governor not being willing to call a Christmas tree a Christmas tree. Instead, he wants to call it a holiday tree. Or some department store, instead of saying Merry Christmas when you walk in, they say Happy Holidays or whatever it might be, manger scenes being removed from government buildings and all those type of things. And you know what? That stuff really doesn't bug me that much. Sure, there's part of me that gets a little frustrated by all of that. But what frustrates me more during the Christmas season is to see people who say they are believers in Jesus Christ, who claim to be Christians, who go about this season acting just like the world acts. And we get all flustered about whether or not Sears says Happy Holidays or Merry Christmas instead of really focusing on what we need to focus on. And that is, is our heart aimed towards God? Is our heart in the right place this season? Do we have a glimpse of the glory and the majesty of what happened in that manger? Do we even begin to comprehend what it is that God's done? That's what I'm more worried about. Um... I picked up this book this morning as I was leaving the house because I remembered a quote from it that if I remembered it correctly, I wanted to say it this morning. So just kind of last minute, I'm throwing this in. And this is from A.W. Tozer's book called Knowledge of the Holy. If you're not familiar with this book, get it. It's a great little book. It's it's not very long. 
A.W. Tozer was a Christian and Missionary Alliance pastor, and he's talking about the, the situation in America today, and even within our churches, and we don't feel the weight of who God is, and we don't feel the burden of our sin. He says this, Unless the weight of the burden is felt, the gospel can mean nothing to the man. Until he sees a vision of God high and lifted up, there will be no woe and no burden. Listen to this. Low views of God destroy the gospel for all who hold them. My biggest fear is that during the Christmas season, we have a lot of low views of God. From people who claim to be God's people. We have these low views of God. Therefore, the gospel isn't heard during the Christmas season. So as I prayed about where to go in Isaiah, I wasn't originally going to start with Isaiah 6. But I felt this burden. And I felt God just really pushing me to take us to this passage of Scripture. Which is an enormous passage of Scripture. This text should drive us into a deeper awe of our Lord Jesus Christ. I do believe that what Isaiah sees here in Isaiah chapter 6 is a pre-incarnate glimpse of the enthroned Christ. Why do I say that? Mainly I say it because the Bible in John chapter 12, particularly verse 41 of John chapter 12, specifically says that Isaiah saw Christ in this passage. Now there's some other technical reasons as well But there's many throughout history of the church that have believed that this was a vision of Christ. Calvin said this, In this passage, therefore, God is mentioned indefinitely, yet it is correctly said that Isaiah saw the glory of Christ, for at that very time he was the image of the invisible God. So let us therefore examine this passage this morning and hopefully re-examine how we approach Christmas. Let Isaiah stir up a proper awe and reverence for the holiness and glory of God this Christmas. So I have three points. Just three points for the sermon. I'm a Baptist. I always have to have at least three, right? Three points this morning. I'm going to go ahead and give you all three right off the bat so your notes are easy to fill out. Here's the three points. First, let us gaze upon the majesty of God this Christmas. I want this text to stir us up to gaze upon the majesty of God. Secondly, let us be amazed by the mercy of God this Christmas. And thirdly, let us make known the message of God this Christmas. So, again, I'm a good Baptist. Three M's. Majesty, mercy, message. That's what I want to see from this text this morning and this season, this Christmas season. I want to see it happen in my life. So first, let's look at the majesty of God in this text. Let us see the majesty of God this Christmas. Verse 1, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died. Now this is significant. The year that King Uzziah died. The year here that Isaiah is referring to is specifically 740 B.C. or around there. Now this is not just a reference solely to the historical pinpoint of when these events occurred, but rather this is a reference to a significant shift A significant watershed moment in the history of God's people. So the the date of Uzziah's death had meaning. It was a transition time in Israel. It's just kind of like certain dates have meaning to us as well. So like when our consulate was attacked in Libya, the fact that it happened on September 11th had meaning. 
It wasn't just any old date. That, that meant something. And so too here, as Isaiah starts this record of his vision of God here in the temple, he mentions it happening in the year King Uzziah died. Now Uzziah had been king in, in Judah for about 52 years, and he had reigned since he was 16 years old. Uzziah was one of those good kings. Now if you remember from reading First and Second Kings and Second Chronicles, that the kings of the northern tribes and the kings of the southern tribes, the text would say, this king did evil in the sight of the Lord, or this king did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and, and each king is referred to that way. Now, all the kings of the northern tribes, every single one of them did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But at least in the southern tribes of Judah, there were some kings who did what was right, and there were some kings that did what was evil, and Uzziah was one of those good kings. However, we read in Second Chronicles 26 that Uzziah grew proud and, and, and tried to go into the temple at one point, And tries to burn incense. He tries to do what the priests were only allowed to do. He tries to take on the role of the priest. And those in the temple, the priests, tried to hold him back and told him not to do this. But he insisted and his pride and his arrogance were on full display. And the Lord struck him with leprosy, we read. And so the last years of Uzziah's reign were, were carried out in isolation and in disgrace. But for the most part, Uzziah had brought significant spiritual reform to the people of Judah. And his death marks a shift in the spiritual direction of the people of Judah. This was a shift in the spiritual direction. Also, on the political horizon at that time, there was a new force on the scene named Assyria. A nation called Assyria. A brutal and powerful nation under a brutal and ambitious king named Tiglath-Pileser. Who wanted to rule the world. That was his ambition, to rule the world. Assyria was beginning to strike fear into all the surrounding nations. And Uzziah's death, therefore, also meant that this was a time of political uncertainty and uneasiness. So it's with that in mind that we read that Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Uzziah the king had died. But the king of heaven was still reigning. Tiglath-Pileser was ravaging the region. But the king of heaven was still reigning. Friends, we live in a certain amount of uncertainty in our day and age as well. I don't think it compares to what the people of Judah faced. But we, we live in some uncertainty, terrorism, political uneasiness, and something called a fiscal cliff that apparently we're going to go off in a few days. And our leaders, they come and go, they disappoint. But God is still on his throne. Let us see that this Christmas. The Lord is sitting on his throne. He's king. And his throne is high and lifted up. Meaning that this king that Isaiah was seeing, this king of heaven, is supreme above all. He's sovereign above all. He's infinitely higher and better than any good king like Uzziah. And he's infinitely stronger than any powerful king like Tiglath-Pileser. And he reigns now. No presidential election. No um, um, changes on our political scene affect the supremacy of his reign. No fiscal cliff or economic uncertainty affects the sovereignty of his rule. He rules, he reigns, he is the majestic king. And let us see and savor that truth and let us rest in that truth this Christmas season. 
Christians should be the most peaceful people in the world, the least anxious people in the world, because we serve the king who is sitting on his throne high and lifted up. Yet it's during seasons like this, after an election hasn't gone the way most Christians wanted it to go, or whatever's on the scene, there's terrorism going on. I see Christians biting their fingernails like, like, like they're worried about things. And it, it's, I struggle to understand that because we belong to the king who rules and reigns. It shouldn't have us so worried when we see our world in upheaval. But unfortunately, we're too often like the world, blind, deaf, and dumb to the fact that our God really does reign. Too often, we're like the foolish people of Jerusalem who had no idea when those magi showed up. The magi showed up and said, where's, where's he who's been born king of the Jews? And the people of Jerusalem have no idea what they're talking about. Beyond that, they're actually troubled by what these magi say. And why are they troubled? Because they fear men. There's this tyrant named Herod on the throne. If Herod finds out that there's been a king born, it's going to be trouble for all of us. The foolish people of Jerusalem had no eyes to see the king who was sitting on his throne. Friends, we don't know what tomorrow may bring, but we should know who it is who reigns yesterday, today, and tomorrow. During times of uncertainty, our minds should contemplate the glory of our true king. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Oh, if we could just see what Isaiah saw. The text goes on to say that the train of his robe filled the temple. Again, this is an image of royalty. You guys remember, the kids won't. Some of the adults in here won't. But you remember, like, Princess Di's wedding, or more recently, Kate and, what's the guy's name? William? Kate, those royal people. Okay, you remember those weddings? And, and as the bride came in, what did she have? She had this train that went really, really long. And there's, uh, there's be these attendants, you know, helping carry that train as she walks in. And that train meant something. It signified something. It signified royalty and power and, and prestige. And so this robe here that the king of heaven is wearing communicates something to us. A king would communicate to the onlookers his power and status by the type of robe he wore. And this robe, the train of it, goes over the throne and, and fills the whole temple. Now, isn't it interesting where this vision takes place? In the temple. So we have a throne, high and lifted up, meaning that, that God is king. And it's happening in the temple, which is the place of what? Priests. God is functioning here as king and as priest, another reason I believe this is a manifestation of Christ. Remember why Uzziah had been struck with leprosy? He had tried to function as king and as priest. But no man can do that. He died in dishonor and disgrace. He was not able to do such a thing. Only the king of heaven could carry out such a dual role. Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. We go on to read in verse 2, it says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The word seraphim here means flaming one or flames. But it's only mentioned here in Scripture. It's the only place seraphim are mentioned. 
So I'm not going to take too much time to speculate about what God doesn't give us a lot of information about. I mean, there's whole books that have been written on seraphim. And uh, nor am I going to speculate too much about their wing positions here. I, I, I mean, to me, it's just natural. I mean, they're covering their face because they're in the presence of the Almighty. It's humility. You've got to cover your face. You can't look on the Lord and live. So they cover their face. And covering their feet, I think, is also a sign of humility. Just as Moses was told to take off his shoes for he was standing on holy ground. I'm more concerned this morning with what they said. And this is what they said in verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. This is what we must hear and believe this Christmas. We must see the holiness of God. We will not celebrate Christmas rightly if we don't begin to grasp the holiness of God. In the Hebrew language, there were no exclamation points or punctuation marks like that in order to, to make it clear that this was something that was very important. So if the writer wanted to make an emphatic statement, he would use the, the, the literary device of verbal repetition. Repeating something once meant that it was important. So oftentimes we have in the scriptures where Jesus is about to teach something, he really wants them to know it's important. What does he say? Truly, truly. He repeats it once, truly, truly. It's like putting an exclamation mark. Listen, guys, truly, truly, I say these things to you. And so, too, all throughout the Scriptures, in both the Old and the New Testament, there's this device of verbal repetition. Paul does it even in his letters sometimes to make the point this is important. Yet here we see the word holy not repeated once, but twice. This is the only attribute of God that's ever repeated twice like this. Nowhere do we read in the Bible that God is love, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. We, the only time we have this double repetition is here. Holy, holy, holy. This is his absolute moral purity, his uniqueness, his differentness. His majesty, his nature, his character, his very essence is all engulfed into this statement that he is holy, holy, holy. It's almost as if the, the English, the Hebrew language, Greek, whatever, it's almost as if it can't even contain the glory of God. Our human language is too limited. So they had to come up with a device they don't even use that much. Holy, holy, holy. There's not enough exclamation marks to actually emphasize this. Holy, holy, holy. And we hear the seraphim saying, the whole earth is full of his glory. God's glory is made known in all the created order. The earth shouts the glory of God. The only creatures that refuse to give glory to God are the very ones created to image forth his glory most radiantly, which is us, humans. Instead, sinful men try to spread their own glory as far as they can. So from time to time, guys like Tiglath Pileasar try to rule the world and fill the world with their vain glory. But they never succeed. Tiglath here didn't succeed. Caesar didn't succeed. Hitler didn't succeed. But one king has succeeded, always will succeed, and that's King Jesus. 
Friends, this baby in the manger is precious and pure and tender and mild. But he is holy, holy, holy. And upon the proclamation of that truth, we read that the foundations of the threshold shook. The foundations, not the drywall, they didn't have drywall, the rocks, the most solid things that there were, the foundation of the thresholds shook at this proclamation of the holiness of God. Inanimate rocks trembled at the holiness of God. How much more should we tremble at the holiness of God? And the house was filled with smoke. Smoked oftentimes in the Old Testament represents God's glory. It's overwhelming, engulfing everything. I believe the smoke here is coming from the altar that we'll look at here in a bit. This is the scene. God has sort of pulled back the the veil of heaven so that Isaiah can see his majesty. Oh, if we could just get the glimpse that Isaiah got, Christmas would change. It would change everything. Matter of fact, it may wreck everything. It may wreck your Christmas plans. It may wreck your Christmas spending budget. It may wreck the very fabric of our being. For that's exactly what it did to Isaiah. Verse 5. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Kids, have you ever had an uh uh-oh moment? What I mean is you did something you weren't supposed to do. Maybe you even did it accidentally. But still, you did something wrong. You messed up. Maybe you broke something. or Maybe you got caught in a lie. And your parents have found out. And it's an uh uh-oh moment. Uh Uh-oh. You know what's coming. Some sort of discipline is coming. And you feel that in the pit of your stomach, I'm in trouble. It's not a good feeling. Okay, multiply that by a million or more. And that's Isaiah. This is an uh uh-oh moment. Woe is me. To understand this, I think we got to understand what the role of prophets were. In the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, they would bring, prophets would bring an oracle to God's people, a word from God. And there were two basic types of oracles. There were oracles of blessing, and there were oracles of judgment or woe. So in an oracle of blessing, like Jesus did at the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in spirit, for they shall see God. Or blessed are the, and he goes on and on. Jesus functioned as a prophet. But then there were oracles of judgment or oracles of woe. And so Jesus would say to the Pharisees, Woe to you Pharisees and scribes. Woe to you. And so Isaiah here is a prophet. And when he sees the holiness of God, his first reaction is to pronounce a prophetic woe upon himself. Not woe are all these people, but woe is me. 
I deserve divine judgment. When he sees God's true holiness for the first time, he sees who he truly is for the first time. That's when we realize we're in big trouble, when we begin to see God for who he really is. Isaiah says, For I am lost. Your translation may say, For I am ruined. It's one of the rare times I prefer the old King James. What does it say? I am undone. I'm undone. That really conveys the meaning here, the picture of this Hebrew word. The word does mean to perish, but it also means to perish by disintegrating. Disintegrate, completely fall apart. Perhaps no one I'm aware of has done more good work on this passage of Scripture, exegetical work, than R.C. Sproul. He's kind of built his whole ministry around the work that he did in the book he wrote as a result of studying this passage of Scripture. And R.C. Sproul brought out a great thing that I, I never really thought of before, but he talks about the word integrity. The word integrity, to us, we equate it with goodness and righteousness and good behavior. A person of integrity. And the word itself means whole. Whole. So what happens when Isaiah sees the holiness of God? His integrity is shattered. And he disintegrates. He becomes undone in the presence of a holy God. Why is he undone? He says, for I am a man of unclean lips, meaning he's a dirty sinner. The lips were created primarily to give glory to God, among other things, but it's with our mouth that we really show how sinful we are, isn't it? What did Jesus teach? That out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The mouth reveals what is in our heart. Our mouths are like spiritual barometers. When we're unchained and uninhibited by the presence of other people around, what what comes out of that mouth? When we're not here hanging out with church people, what comes out of that mouth? That's a barometer. That's a measurement of what's in the heart. If outside of these walls, your mouth is no different than the world, it's a cause of concern. It's a spiritual barometer. It's a measurement of what's in the heart. Now, it's important to note here that Isaiah was one of the good guys, right? I mean, Judah is on a path at this point towards spiritual darkness. King Uzziah actually spent the last 10 years of his reign as a leper. And even during those 10 years of his reign, we began to see Judah drifting off into idolatry and sin. There weren't that many good people left. But Isaiah is one of the good guys, right? But he doesn't make any claim to his goodness here when he stands before the holiness of God. You see, the holiness of God has this way of destroying our self-righteousness. When we really contemplate the holiness of God, it has this way of just taking our self-righteousness and exploding it into pieces, disintegrating it. And we're all prideful people, putting way too much stock in our goodness. We're always finding someone who's worse than us. Some family who's more messed up than ours. Some church that's worse than ours. 
Oh, let this Christmas season, as we meditate upon the holy, holy, holy child, let it destroy our pride. Isaiah saw God and he knew that he was merely a sinner amongst other sinners. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell amidst a people of unclean lips. Before the pure white splendor of God's holiness, all of our dirt stands out. When we moved into the house we currently live in, downstairs, there was only one place that had carpet. It was our living room. Everything else downstairs is hardwood floors and we actually wanted the hardwood floors because we have children that get dirt on their feet. And when you know it, this carpet was white. And so when we were weighing whether or not we were going to buy the house or anything, one of the things I was concerned about was this white carpet. I mean, woe is me. I have children of unclean feet. And I'm a man of unclean feet. And sure enough, I mean, the people that lived there before didn't have children. And sure enough, it wasn't long before that carpet was just horrible. White carpet, that bright white carpet made every little piece of dirt stand out. It didn't matter what it was, it stood out. And so too, when we stand in the presence of the holiness of God, the bright white light of His holiness exposes even the the smallest sin in our life. I have said it often lately, that we must understand our depravity in order to fully grasp the glory of the gospel. I've probably said that ten times in the last... 15 weeks. Well, we must understand our depravity in order to understand the, the glory of the gospel. But in reality, even before that, we must see and savor the holiness of God if we're to properly understand our depravity. Gaze upon God's holiness, meditate upon it, and you'll begin to see, we'll all begin to see how unclean we really are. And then, and then, Grace. Amazing grace. Grace is only amazing when we understand how undone we really are. So the second thing I pray that happens this Christmas season is that we'll be amazed by the mercy of God. Isaiah deserves the fate he so fears, and so do we. But God shows grace and mercy. Friends, we live in a in a psychotherapeutic culture that thinks we're all somehow entitled to God's love. That's the world we live in. We just think we're entitled to God's love. I mean, you go ask the average person, does God love you? Yeah, why? He just loves me. You know, I know I mess up some, but everyone's entitled to some mistakes. We don't understand the holiness of God. We don't understand that every breath, even an unbeliever, every breath He breathes in and then breathes out and then breathes in and then breathes out is a gift from a holy God, a gift they do not deserve at all. They deserve to be undone instantly. Yet God, in his mercy and grace, has poured out his love upon all mankind. But there's a redeeming love, a great and rich love that he has for his children We talked a lot about that over the past couple of weeks. It says here in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. A burning coal from the altar. What altar? Well, in the temple, 
there was an altar where the burnt sacrifices were offered. The place where people would bring an animal, and that animal in their place would be slaughtered and then incinerated. The fate of the wor- that the worshiper deserved, the animal received. And from that altar, a coal was taken and placed against Isaiah's lips. Why? Well, it was his lips that had symbolized his utter depravity. And it would be his lips where the atonement would be applied because God's remedy is always sufficient for our ailment. And with that, his guilt was taken away and his sin was atoned for. Of course, these things point forward to the grand glory of the final atonement and the final guilt offering that was given and offered once for all by Jesus Christ. That baby, that baby that Joseph and Mary would, would after, after he was born, take to the temple to be dedicated to the Lord. And Simeon holds up that baby and foreshadowing his death, he says, this child will be opposed He would be rejected, he would be despised, and ultimately crucified. The just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous, to make a final payment for the sins of his people. Guilt taken away, sin atoned for. Grace is not deserved. Grace is not earned. There is one thing that every single human being has earned and deserves. It's hell. Do you want what you've earned? Do you want what you deserve? The only thing you've earned or deserved is hell. Grace is a gift. And it's so amazing because it's so undeserved. Romans says that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Does that not amaze you? You won't be amazed by that if you don't see the woe is me. If you think it's, well, I'm not in a good situation, but at least it's not woe. I mean, we don't go around and use the word woe very much. Woe is me. We think we're at least somewhat good. It's 25%. 25% blessed is me and 75% woe. How about that, God? No. Woe is me. When we look at the major scene this Christmas, think about that. Think about how undone and how utterly ruined you were because of your sin and how you did not deserve anything but God, while we were yet sinners, sent his son to die, to take what we so rightfully deserved. He who was without sin became sin on our behalf. He who was and is absolutely holy, 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 bore our sins. What glory, what grace, what majesty, what mercy. We must see the glory and majesty if we are going to fully see the grace and the mercy. And only when people put their faith there and there alone in what Christ accomplished as he took the fiery wrath of God on our behalf. Will they truly see and experience the gift of Christmas? And when we have truly received that gift, we can't help but spread good news of great joy. And so that's the next thing on our points up here. Is that this year I want us to make known the message of God this Christmas. It says in verse 8 that Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? 
a little parenthetical note again here. This plural use of the word there indicates the, the triune nature of God. Then he said, this is Isaiah now, Here I am, send me. This is what grace should produce. Grace produces emissaries. Grace produces ambassadors. 2 Corinthians 5 speaks of how uh, we've been reconciled to God. And that as a result of that reconciliation, we, we've been given a ministry of what? Of reconciliation. The, the re- reconciling work of God should produce ambassadors for Christ. So we must see the holiness of God in order to fully see the sinfulness, our depravity, and we must see that utter sinfulness in order to fully see and savor God's mercy and grace. And if we have truly seen the immensity of God's grace toward us, we should be people who cannot help but be messengers, missionaries, ministers of reconciliation. So why aren't we? Why aren't we? I think it starts with us not grasping the holiness of God. The chain is broken at the very beginning. This Christmas of all seasons should be a time in which we proclaim the kingdom of God and what it's about. And it's not about making sure the governor of Rhode Island calls that silly tree a Christmas tree. That is not what we're emissaries of. It's not about making sure Walmart says Merry Christmas. It's not about making sure you get the manger scene back in front of the courthouse. It's about spreading the gospel message of a holy God who has a holy wrath against sin. And we, woe are we, we deserve that wrath. But God in his grace and mercy has provided a way. And that way was through Jesus Christ who was born 2,000 years ago. That's what this is about. That's the war on Christmas that's going on right now. It's a war against the gospel and it has nothing to do with manger scenes, Christmas trees, or slogans. Holy, holy, holy. My friends, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil at work in this dark world, blinding the minds of unbelievers. This mission that Isaiah volunteered for wasn't going to be easy. Verse 9. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Basically, God is telling Isaiah, they will not listen to you. Successful ministry is about obedience. We cannot let the world's definition of success drive our ministries. We can't let it drive us individually. We can't let it drive us as a church. Let me tell you what will happen if we let the world's definition of success drive our ministry. We will have to do two things. Diminish the holiness of God... And diminish the depravity of man. Because the message of Isaiah here was not popular. It doesn't fill the seats of the church houses. Because it's a message of holiness. It's a message of depravity. And a message of grace. But we live in a culture that just wants the cheap grace. 
Just give me the grace. Don't bother me with that other stuff. Don't tell me how bad I am. We can't let the world's definition of success drive us because if we let go of the holiness of God and we let go of the depravity of man, then we let go of the gospel. Far be it from us to tamper with God's word and to practice such cunning. This is how the message of God always works. The Bible makes it clear the gospel is not attractive to the lost. It's offensive. Far be it from us to try to make it what it's not. Remember, the gospel has two functions. We talked about this last week and maybe the week before. It all kind of jumbles together in my mind. It softens some unto repentance but it hardens others unto judgment. It has that function. That's what the gospel does. Mary was even told this by Simeon. Simeon said, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many. There were some who were going to hear the gospel message of this Christ child and they would fall. They would reject it. They'd be hardened by the message. And there's others who would recognize their depravity. And be lifted up by grace. To one a fragrance from death to death. To the other a fragrance from life to life. You say, well that's Old Testament though, Steve. That's Old Testament. We live in the the New Covenant. So, So Isaiah's harsh message isn't our message. I beg to differ. Jesus quoted this text when he was referring to his own message going out. Paul quotes it, Peter quotes it, John quotes it. It's all in the New Testament. It's a New Testament teaching as well, and it's true that the people that hated the good news of the gospel of Isaiah are the same people that hate the good news of the gospel we see in the New Testament because it's the same gospel. Some will respond, but many won't when they hear the message of a holy God of depraved men, and of a gracious atonement and forgiveness. And God uses the message when it's, when it's not heard, when, it's, when it falls upon deaf ears and blind eyes, he uses it for judgment. Verse 11, then I said, how long, O Lord? Which I would be asking too if I just found out my ministry is going to be pretty much no one's going to listen. So Isaiah said, okay, no one's going to listen. How long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. My friends, as the gospel goes out at Christmas time, what's going to bring judgment upon this nation and these people is as the gospel goes out and it's not heard and it's rejected, God's not going to judge America because we didn't put a manger scene in front of our courthouse. He's going to judge this nation because they heard the gospel and willfully wanted to have nothing to do with it because they had hard hearts. It wasn't going to be an easy message for Isaiah. It's not an easy message for us. But God leaves Isaiah with a glorious picture of hope. For some will respond. Some will believe. That's the great news That's great news. When I think about the sovereignty of God and evangelism, it kind of pumps me up because I know some people will respond. 
Verse 13, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. There is a remnant. There is a remnant in Israel. There will be a remnant. There's always been a remnant. In Israel's darkest days, there was a remnant. In the church's most corrupt hour, there has always been a remnant. But the most glorious hope communicated to us in these last last words of Isaiah 6 is the very last thing he says. The holy seed is its stump. You see, for in that remnant, God was still carrying out his promise that he made to Adam and Eve. That the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent. He was still carrying out that promise. He was carrying out the promise he had made to Abraham that Abraham's offspring, singular, would one day bless the whole earth. He was still carrying out that promise he had made to Isaac and to Jacob and on and on and on, even into Isaiah. He's still carrying out the promise. And the promise was that an offspring was coming, a seed, an heir was coming, in whom all the promises of God would find their yes and amen. The holy seed is its stump. Oh, Christian, this child that's in our manger scene is that seed. A holy, holy, holy seed. Let us worship him rightly. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. God, our Father, forgive us for the half-hearted worship we so frequently give you. Forgive us for treating you like a a buddy instead of like a king who reigns on high. Oh Lord, you are the friend of sinners. But that friendship came at an enormous cost. And so we shouldn't be glib and half-hearted about our relationship with you. We serve the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. So as we gather around our tables during this Christmas season and we sing songs or do Advent wreaths and read Christmas stories and do Jesse trees or the other traditions that are so much a part of what we enjoy this season, let us not lose sight of the God of Isaiah 6. And forgive us, Lord, of the many times we do. We praise you, Lord. We thank you. And as we sing this song, we want your holiness to be declared. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.